0: Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm speaking with Sam Carey. Now, Sam is a... Collegiate soccer player. She has been a soccer player on the Iowa women's team for five years now. She's going into her, her final season as a collegiate athlete. And of course, I like to talk to athletes from from all walks of life. People that's been in the Olympics. People that are doing sports that we haven't heard of as much. The conversation with Sam, I think, is just a really, really amazing one because we get into what it's like to be a collegiate athlete, what it's like to be recruited as a freshman in high school, not even knowing what you want to do, with your high school career, and now you're having to already make that uh, that next step, that next decision, which is tough for for a young person. Uh, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a, a collegiate athlete. You know, she had some some troubles in the very beginning. She took the spot of a, a senior as a freshman. That didn't make her a lot of friends. Um, there was some drama, some clicks going on when she first started, uh, which really took a toll on her mental health. We're going to talk a lot about the mental health aspect of being a a collegiate athlete because it's it's real it's a real thing you know there's so many pressures there between performing well between, you know, doing well academically, you can't forget that side of things, uh, that uh, it, it's something that we're learning a lot more about now. I mean, we should have learned a lot about it in the past, but we're, it's coming more to light now through, frankly, some, some tragedies that have happened because of it. So we're going to be really honest about that. Uh, Sam was really amazing talking about her, her journey in that, her journey from uh, being a perfectionist and being too hard on herself and the mental tolls that that took. Uh, we're going to talk also about just the new world of NIL, which, if you don't know, you know you're not a, a college athletic fan or you're not from the United States. It stands for name, image, likeness, where now college players for the first time can legally, because it's been happening for a long time, but legally be paid. For brand deals, things like that, they're still not technically being paid to be uh, an athlete. They're being paid to sponsor things or promote things, that kind of thing. We have a real conversation about that, just about disparities between the men who are, you know, getting these deals because they're really good, and the women who are getting these deals because of very different things, and their abilities in sports don't matter as much. Uh, when and the issues that that raises, so. Sam was just an amazing person to talk to going through her collegiate career going through her career from a young kid being a a soccer player to now being a fifth year senior and captain on the Iowa team. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. I learned so much. You know, I know I already know a lot about college athletics. I you know, of course I talked to somebody who is in the enforcement side of of these this thing and uh, just talking to someone that's so well-versed and knows so much about the college world, uh, I think that you're going to enjoy this. She actually wrote a book kind of laying out, hey, this is what it takes to be a college athlete uh, for the athlete, and then also, hey, parents, this is what it's going to take for you to support that person. So I I learned so much, and I think you're going to enjoy this one. Here is Sam Carey. I'm here today with Sam Carey. Miss Carey, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Hardest question of the whole evening. Just introduce yourself.
1: All right. Well, my name is Sam Carey. I am currently a fifth year on the University of Iowa women's soccer team. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, originally. And yeah, I grew up playing co- uh, soccer my entire life. Had the dream of playing college soccer and getting ready to go into my last season of it.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. I want to kind of start it at that beginning. What What created that initial passion for soccer?
1: You know, it's a really interesting story. Um, neither of my parents were athletes. I joke all the time that I have the two most stereotypical nerds, I guess you would say, as parents. Mm-hmm. And I was just really competitive. It wasn't necessarily soccer that was the calling. To be honest, if you saw me play soccer when I was six years old, you would laugh at my face and say I was terrible. But I loved just seeing work pay off. You know, if it was, I sucked at hitting a long ball, but then I could hit 30 of them and all of a sudden my long balls got better and that got addicting for me. So it wasn't necessarily soccer that I fell in love with. I love competing and I love getting better and soccer is my channel to do that. And yeah, just through life, it kind of stayed being soccer, a couple other sports growing up, but soccer was the one that stuck and here we are.
0: Yeah. And we're going to talk later on because I've listened to you in some other interviews and just about your I guess your competitiveness and your drive to, to be the best you can. I think that kind of uh, is a, I guess a theme throughout things, but I want to ask you, you said that soccer maybe wasn't, you know, your, your first love. What made you stick with that? Was it just that you, that's what you were starting to excel at the most? Is it what provided the most challenge and you just wanted to stick with it? Or what about it made us talking to you as a soccer player right now and not as a, you know, a gymnast or a basketball player?
1: You know, that's a great question. I think a lot of it came from the people I was around all the time. For me, the two sports I really took seriously growing up were soccer and track and field. And to be completely honest, I was way better at track than I was at soccer. I, in middle school, was running mile times that were second in the nation and on that trajectory. And a lot of people in my life at that point were telling me to quit soccer and really focus on track. And I love what track taught me. I think the number one rule that I learned is accountability. You know, on soccer, really early on in my life, I would, you know, the goal wasn't my fault. It was my teammates or it was this person's fault. And it's easy to kind of push that off. But when you're running track, it's you against the clock. And if you don't perform, it's on you. And I think those lessons really translated over to soccer. So I didn't like the microscope that track put on me and in the individual sport. I like being around people. I'm a very extroverted person. So of course, track, you know, has its team aspects, but I loved the family that I had in soccer and the lessons that I learned in track. So I was able to apply those lessons from track and bring them into soccer. And once I really learned those strides about, you know, having that accountability, working hard for something, that's when the goal of playing college soccer kicked in for me. And so it was like, at that point in my life, I was going to do it. And this was a decision I made seventh or eighth grade. And there was no looking back once I jumped two feet in.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. And I want to ask you early on in, in your soccer uh, career, if, if we want to call it that, uh, as a kid, what does, what does youth soccer look like in the U.S.? Obviously, most sports, well, not most, but a, a good chunk of sports, the U.S. is kind of at the, the forefront of, of it, so whether it's basketball, football, all these type of things. It's kind of the leagues are the best probably in the world, but that's not the case in soccer, not even by a, a long shot. So what does the development look like? Is it, is it pretty strong within the U.S.? Or, or talk about kind of that development from a six-year-old all the way up to, to being a collegiate athlete.
1: You know, I obviously don't know a ton about other sports processes. However, I would say U.S. soccer, in the way that it has developed, has become one of the most complicated processes to navigate as a young athlete. You know, soccer is probably one of the most popular kids when you sign your kid up for a sport, like a six-year-old up for a sport. I feel like soccer is always one of those that come up. The issue comes into play, and like many things in the United States, it's all about money. It's all about competition. Everyone wants their kid to be the best, and that makes sense. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the system, the funnel, I guess you'll say, of how you bring a group of kids and kind of start weeding them out to the top makes a lot more sense when you look at other countries. It's basically, you have your towns, you have these groups of kids, they select the best, they play for the best team, we're done. And they slowly grow them in academies and the way they go from there. In youth soccer, we have so many different paths that are around that you can take that make it a very complicated and a very diluted field. So you have USYS, so Youth soccer. You have National League. You have ECNL. You have Girls Academy. You have... EPL, like those are just leagues that come to my mind at the top of my head that offer Mm -hmm. soccer from U11 through U18. So fifth grade through senior in high school. So as someone who wants to play college soccer, of course, I want to play against the best of the best. I want to play where the college coaches are going to be, where they're going to scout me and all those things. Well, it becomes really complicated when out of St. Louis, let's just say there's four teams. One's ECNO, one's GA, one's whatever. And how do you choose which one's the best? And then naturally, the best players out of that pool are now separated amongst four teams, let's just say. Mm -hmm. So U.S. soccer is a very, very complicated process. And then you have, you know, these events, of course, are competitors. So the National College Recruiting Event for the ECNL is going to be at the same time as the GA. So college staffs have to split up about where they're recruiting from and you get less eyes on you. Mm -hmm. So naturally, as we know about most things in the U.S., everything is about money and That's a lot about how U.S. soccer has kind of started to develop. It's very much about, you know, you can get to the big fancy leagues and the big fancy showcases if you pay a lot of money. And it's really, you know, taken out a lot of that heart and soul of the game, I think. You know, you look at countries like Brazil, like Uganda even, and you have kids that grow up playing soccer in the streets that love the game, and those are some of your best, most talented players, and they grow them and they find them. Mm -hmm. In the U.S. system, if you're not playing for the big fancy club, if you're not playing for the fancy coach, you're easy to get forgotten. So it's a very complicated scheme. It's a very political scheme. And so it's, it's a lot to navigate, especially as for me, you know, my parents didn't know anything about it. We didn't know how to navigate it. And it was a lot to figure out and a lot of trial and error.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's kind of what I figured, but I, I was hoping that wasn't the case. I talked to, you know, a two-time Olympic medalist in swimming and water polo and talking about kind of the, the same type of thing where the way that our system is set up we're not really a hundred percent sure whether we're getting always the best athletes through it, but just the ones that family was able to pay their way through the system, which is a little bit unfortunate. And I hate that, that, that sounds to, like that's kind of the case, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I I don't like to hear that, but uh, I think that that's, that's, that's kind of the way that it is in a lot of, of, of youth areas. I do want to ask you, cause I know, I, you 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 gave me all these letters. I don't remember the ones. I know you you were in one that started with an E. What made you do that? I watched a video of you uh, even being a ref in that league. So so talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely get more into my refing life. So that's a whole other crazy atmosphere. But so I grew up playing in the ECNL, um, and at the time, the crazy thing is, like I can say at the time, so. I've been in college for five years now. So I started playing in the ECL when I was 13. So that's nine years ago, which is really crazy to say out loud. Mm -hmm. And with that, that was at the time the best team in St. Louis. And that was the best club that we had in St. Louis. So that was my natural option. You know, a really funny story was, like I said, around seventh grade, I had this goal of playing college soccer. And both my parents were like, all right, we have no idea how to do that. So like I said, my dad's kind of a nerd and he went to school at the University of Illinois. So the university invited him to go give a lecture about whatever it is he does. And they're like, okay, we'll offer to pay you. And he's like, I don't want your money. I want a one-on-one conversation with the head soccer coach at the University of Illinois. And so I was in seventh grade. I had no idea this happened. And he sat down with her and was like, all right, my daughter's 13. I'm not asking you to recruit her. I'm not asking for anything like that. But where do we need to be and what do we need to do? So that's honestly how my parents figured out how to navigate the process. And she was like, you need to be playing for this coach on this team. And we're like, all right, sounds good. I tried out for the team and I made it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of crazy. You know, like I was fortunate to catch that lucky break. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know where I would have ended up. But yeah, so I played in the East and And I would say that that's the top women's league in the country. Obviously, I'm a little biased. There's so many different talents in different regards. But in the St. Louis area, it's definitely the most dominating team.
0: You're talking about how you were... 13, 14 at this time, but I know that you, the recruiting in, in soccer starts really early. I think that you committed to, to Iowa when you were 15. So what, what's that look like? What making such a, you know, a drastic decision? You know, I, I, I work in higher education. I work in, in admissions and advising. So it's always, I mean, it's even strange to me that at 18, 19, we're asking people to figure out what they want to do with their life. And at 15, we're even moving it even earlier that you had to pick where you want to go to school and kind of think of that academic side too. So what what was that like? I feel like that's a, a lot of pressure for a, a 15 year
1: old. Yeah, it was absolutely nuts to be completely honest. So luckily since then the rules have changed and they've delayed it a little bit. So now girls can't be contacted by coaches until June 15th going into their junior year. So hopefully they're a little older than I was at the time, but When I was going through it, it was kind of fair game. So I went on my first college visit September of my freshman year of high school. So I was 14 years old. And just saying that out loud is absolutely nuts. You know, I'm beyond lucky with the way that my parents took the approach. And they let it be my decision. They gave me pros and cons. And they let me kind of explore my options when it came to playing college soccer. But I knew they would support me and they didn't push me in any manner. You know, so many girls, I feel, get their first college offer and they're like, all right, boom, I'm going there. It's simple. Decision's done. Let's get this process over with. And that works out for some. But I think, honestly, for so much of soccer, you know, the transfer portal's been nuts. And I think so much of it is because we make these decisions when we're 14, 15 years old. How do we know what we want? I got extremely lucky. I took my time in the recruiting process. And it is crazy to say I took my time. I committed October of my sophomore year of high school. So, yeah, I committed to college before I could even drive a car. Mm. which is insane to say, but you know, for me, I, I'm a Midwest girl. I always have been being from St. Louis. I couldn't be a plane fly away from home. I knew that in my heart and I'm a gut, you know, but I was exposed to different types of schools. That was one thing I'm really thankful that my parents encouraged me to do. So I didn't just look at big 10 universities, but I went out West and I looked at some schools in California. I went down South a little bit. I looked at not only, you know, massive power five schools, but some mid-major schools. So I was able to find some bit of their variety when I was in my recruiting process to really determine what I wanted. And for me, I always knew I wanted to play in the big 10. You know, I, that's the heart of the Midwest right there. Power five conference. How could you not? And so I was looking at schools like Illinois, Purdue, Wisconsin, and honestly, Iowa was not on my radar. I was like, why would I want to go to Iowa? You know, of course being from Missouri thinking that Iowa was whatever it is. And I got an email from the coach that summer. They're like, Hey, can you come to campus? Come to an ID camp and then we'll give you a campus tour and everything after. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to turn. I'm never going to say no. That was my big thing. I'm never saying no to any opportunity. So I went and I fell in love with campus. Iowa City is truly a special place. And more than that, I fell in love with our coaching staff. You know, I remember looking back at the recruiting process and I was like, okay, like what coach do I want to play for? And a lot of people were like, you know, you have a great left foot. You're competitive. You're fast. I want to recruit you. And Coach Dave Diani over at Iowa said all those things, but also was like, you're a leader, you have a voice, you know how to speak. Mm -hmm. He really saw me for the person I was. He cared about my family. He wanted to meet my mom, meet my dad, all those things. And I immediately knew, like, if I failed a math test, I could go cry in that man's office. And for someone that was wanting to move away from home and get out of the state of Missouri, that was what I knew I needed. I love the academics at Iowa. You know, I couldn't really go wrong. I feel like a lot of Big Ten universities are on that good level of academics. And so I wanted to play for a coach that felt like family to me. And I think when you look at a recruiting process, you got to look for the energy that I feel like a team gives off and match that to the type of player you are. A lot of people like to play for the big, fancy schools who win the national titles, which don't get me wrong. Of course, I get it. But I'm a very blue collar player. I'm a gritty player. I may not be the most pretty soccer player in the world with the technique, but I will run harder than you. I will hit you harder than you. And that's who I am. And that's what I will represent. And so I knew it was a team that I'd fit into right away.
0: Uh, Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I don't have a favorite women's soccer team. Now, obviously, we're talking about men's or women's basketball. And I'm not a I'm not a huge Iowa fan. I don't know if you can see back here where I where I was. Oh, jeez.
1: All right.
0: That's uh yeah, I'm I'm an IU alum, so Iowa's not my favorite, definitely right now, but uh but I guess Caitlin Clark's okay. I was gonna right?
1: say you've gotta say we turned some heads in that last run. I mean
0: I I would say so. I would say so. I want to uh now talk about kind of your your soccer career, and that is you know, where we're gonna talk about kind of you talked about that competitiveness and that perseverance and maybe you weren't the most pretty soccer player, quote unquote, when it comes to being technically sound maybe, but you, you said in another interview that you are, I thought it was kind of funny, a recovering perfectionist, explain exactly what that means and why that's a good thing. And sometimes it's not so great too.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So definitely I would say still in my recovery with my perfectionism, but you know, I would say it's my biggest blessing and also my biggest curse. Like I said, I grew up in a family where work ethic was everything. When I was in seventh grade, kind of going back to this decision where I really wanted to take soccer seriously, that meant taking the bump from my local club team to our East know, program. And I understood that that meant all of a sudden my parents contributing a lot more financially, a lot more of their time, traveling on the weekends, flying to games, all this stuff. And I remember when I made this decision, my parents sat me down and they're like, all right, we will do this for you. We want this for you you have to give 110 back to us. Like we're not doing this and we're not doing this like halfway. We're going all the way in. And I took that to heart. Like I said, I didn't fall in love with soccer because of soccer. I fell in love with seeing myself get better at things. You know, I loved being the person that would stay after training, come before training, hit balls, work on technique, just really push myself to different levels. And that endorphin kick when in the game you hit the shot that you never thought you could, but you worked on in practice. Like that's just something else. So that motivated me throughout my entire life. You know, like I said, I came from this no-name team, moved to this big club and expected to be the best player by any means. I wasn't expected to be anything. And I worked my way from a bench player to a starter. You know, it was just different things like that that always pushed me. When I committed to Iowa, I had people look at my face and say, there's no way you're going to last in the Big Ten Conference. And I was like, all right, watch me. You know, these motivation factors have what I wanted in my goals. Like I knew I wanted to be a starter at Iowa my freshman year. There is no doubt in my mind, as soon as I committed that my process wasn't over. It was just beginning. And I remember fully deciding that. So I kept diving in. It's always been me chasing the next goal. So I really started I only saw the benefits of it in high school. I was like, all right, let's keep pushing. You know, we're not pushing our body you know, when you switch to high school to college, your body gets a little bit more fatigued and all those different things kick in. But at that time, I wasn't hitting any of those barriers. So I was like, let's just keep going. My biggest sign of the downfall of my perfectionism definitely came my freshman year of college. I was in the dream situation. I was on a team with 13 seniors that year, and I was the one freshman in the starting lineup. So I kicked a senior out of a position her last year of college. And that was something that I never thought I'd be able to do. And so being on this lineup, you know, in a Big Ten conference – we started off. Not, uh, we started off our season that year ten and zero, which was unheard of in Iowa history. Upsetting teams like Notre Dame, NC State, a bunch of really highly ranked teams that year. We were nationally ranked number seventeen, I believe, at the time. And I was a freshman on that team, and I didn't understand why I was in the position I was in. I did not see how good of a soccer player I was because I always kept striving for more. Nothing was ever good enough for me. It was I have to be better. I have to be better, and that motivation to have to be better, let mistakes just snowball in my mind. It's a 90 minute soccer game. You're going to make mistakes 100% every single game. But I would dwell so hard on those because I'm supposed to be perfect. I'm supposed to be the freshman that's starting right now in this situation. I'm supposed to be the best and I am not the best. And that mindset started to really cripple me. I remember like coming home from practices and calling my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm a terrible soccer player. She's like, you're starting on a Big Ten university team. Like, you're not. And I fully would convince, I would go into my coach's office and I was like, guys, why are you starting me? This doesn't make sense. They're like, do you not understand how good you are? And I genuinely did not. I was not able to look in the mirror and see a good soccer player. I only could see my own flaws. So it took a lot of time for me to really break my mind in that regard. And it took me going to therapy, which is something I'm very open about, being a in sports psychology. I think it's something that's not talked about enough in sports athletics. And obviously, we're starting to see the trends start turning, which is incredible to see. And for me, it was my own battle. You know, I've been told my entire life I have to be mentally tough. I have to be stronger. I have to be almost robotic. I remember there are times my freshman year, I used to pride myself about not having emotions. I thought it was the coolest thing. I was like, you can't touch me. I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine until I wasn't fine. And finally, when I remember I was driving home from my practice, just breaking down in tears, talking to my mom about how bad I am. And she was like, Sam, like, this is, you don't have the same light to you. You're not having fun. You're not enjoying the game. Like this should be the high and you're not enjoying it. And at that moment I knew I had to do something about it. So I started sports psychology and, you know, like I said, I'm still recovering from the perfectionism and it's great on some aspects. It drives me. It makes me better. I will not be complacent because there always is someone better. And I'm always chasing that goal. But I also am a little bit better at looking in the rearview mirror and celebrating those successes.
0: That's the thing when it comes to to sports and definitely college sports that you know it's almost looked at as a pedestal of the people that are are tough and that don't get rattled and that you know even the commentators talk about oh look that person you know doesn't get rattled or they don't show their emotions which is almost a you know looked at as a good thing which is not always the case just like you were saying. Do you, you said that it's, it's changing. Do you think it's because just, you know, the, the public is accepting it more and realizing this, or do you think that the culture, when it comes to, you know, the administration, the coaching staffs and all of these places are actually taking, you know, taking to heart people's emotions and everything, not just telling everyone, you gotta, you gotta be tough or the next person will take your spot.
1: You know, I think it's a little bit of both. I think a lot of it is athlete culture in general. I don't know that it's necessary the pressure we get put on from the public, but the pressure we put on ourselves. Most athletes are going to be your extreme perfectionists who take everything to heart, who care about every single detail. And that mindset, not being able to let that go can really, like I said, like it happened to me, drive someone down a hole. On top of that, it's extremely tragic to say, but I think it's taken some unfortunate eye-opening events to really see the impact. You know, being a college soccer player, my mind immediately goes to Katie Meyer, who's a tragic situation out of Stanford University who committed a suicide in March of last year. But it wasn't until that happened that my team started being open with each other. I remember mm-hmm. my coach sat us all down and really we had a good conversation. And it's tragic that that was the trigger of the conversation, but at least a conversation was had and it has still been had. And I will greatly respect the way that my coach handled that situation and we have going forward. And unfortunately for a lot of people, it took tragic events like those to really make the change, but at least the change has been recognized a bit more. And I know that, you know, I think there was six or seven college athletes that committed suicide last year alone which is absolutely horrific to say, but in light of that, the response has been beautiful and it's been opening. And even, you know, being an Iowa athlete, you have Patrick McCaffrey who's supposed to be big tough on the Iowa basketball team was very open about taking a step back from men's basketball season this year for his mental health and the support and the unwavering love that he got from the, not only the athletic department, but fans. That was the first time I really saw a change because You know, there's one thing about female athletes being vocal and that's, you know, the exception that we have. It's even tougher for men athletes, male athletes, I believe, because there's so much more stigma beyond it. So seeing the love that he got, it really helped show that something was changing.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about that, that first year you'd already talked about how you took the the spot of a senior, which I I've heard you talk in, in other interviews and that didn't necessarily make you the most popular person. Talk about how you navigated that. You know, obviously, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know the first thing about your coach, but in that interview, you talked about how, you know, he said he told you that not a lot of people like you right now, which makes. I mean that 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 doesn't feel very good to me that somebody would would say that. So I just wonder how you navigated that, and then I, I guess I, I guess what what doesn't make sense to me is how that culture was was allowed to to even take place for a little while. Cause I know later on you talk about the culture changing and you being a part of that, but how was that allowed in the beginning?
1: Yeah. it was like I, a yeah.
0: kind of a, a hazing, which I was, isn't so great.
1: It was a crazy situation and I am a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. And I will say my high school life was not easy. I was always the girl that was labeled the try hard. I was the one that was not popular in high school to an extent where I had people talking about how I should go kill myself. And once you face that as a junior in high school, I feel like you can take on just about anything. So I firmly believe that my life was set up for a reasonable way. So I actually graduated high school early, mostly because of the situation. I did not enjoy high school. It was not the people for me to want to be around. So I was like, I'll take this opportunity with college soccer and let's just go for it. And yeah, in my first semester, I definitely came in and made waves in some way. Um, the funny thing I like to say is, hey, I've had someone look at me and tell me I should go kill myself. Nothing you say is going to phase me. I'm going to keep being me. And that became one of my biggest blessings throughout my college career because I could always lean back on that. And I knew who I was. You know, my parents instilled in me. I remember coming home that day in high school and bawling my eyes out, talking to them about the situation. My mom looked at me up and down and goes, Sam. If you don't love yourself, if you're not proud of yourself, and if you don't believe in yourself, no one else is going to do it for you. You have to love yourself first before you reflect that light to anyone else. And I had to work on learning to love myself, but I went into college knowing how to love myself. And maybe that wasn't the most popular decision in the world, but I was going to roll with it. And yeah, my first year, I definitely came in. I came in swinging. I was not the most popular girl, especially when you take this place of a senior, you're not going to be. And I come from an area where we practice tough. I'm not in practice just to go into a weak tackle. No, I will leave you with cuts and bruises. Like, that is what I was meant to do. And it wasn't always the cleanest thing. I definitely fouled some more than I probably should have. But that was me bringing my energy and my spark to practice every day. And was not liked on the team. So, yeah, I remember that year, my first semester, my team captain at the time came into my dorm room and was basically like, hey, people think you're really mean. And looking back on it, I think a lot of what really happened was no one tried to get to know me. You know, They saw me on the field. And yeah, I'm a mean player on the field. I'll be the first one to say it. I'm not your friend on the field. But come talk to me off the field. Let's go get coffee. I'm a very different person. And people couldn't separate the two at the time. And I remember that night in my dorm room, I was... In a really dark place, talking to my roommate, I'm like, man, why don't people like me? Like, I feel like I'm a pretty likable person. I'm trying really hard. Like, I'm working my hardest right now for this team. Why don't they see that? And that was my frustration. So yeah, I went into my coach's office the next day, basically fully ready to be like, Hey, put my name in the transfer portal. Like, I'm done. Like, I can't do this. I don't want to be here. And he knew exactly what was coming and sat me down and literally said, like, hey i gonna be really honest with you. No one likes you. And I was like, well, thank you, Sherlock. I figured that one out. You know, appreciate it. And he was like, but you know why you're here? You're here to be the spark. And he was like, give me a year. So at the time, Dave was coming in, and he was on his fourth year on the job when I was there. Meaning that this senior class was like at the start of him trying to change the Iowa soccer culture. They were great players. They're fantastic people. We made the NCAA tournament that year. It was great. However, it's not the culture that I wanted to last in Iowa soccer. There was a lot of things I saw in it, including the way I was treated, that I was like, this is not, you know, you come into college soccer thinking everyone's going to be your best friends. And that was not the way it was. I did not want to spend time around my teammates. I did not feel welcomed. And I had a decision to make in that moment. Do I go find another program where that's where it is? Or do I make that here? And I knew in that moment, everything happens for a reason. I went through what I went through in high school so that I was prepared in college to make this. I did not not give in to those other people to not have the opportunity to make Iowa soccer better. And this was how I was going to leave my legacy. And so my coach was going to be fully willing for me to leave. There was no questions asked, but he was like, I have a group of girls coming in next year. And I think that that's going to be it. And I think that we can do this. And once that class graduated, like I said, it was a very, very big class. They'd been there for a long time. They had their ways, and that's totally fine, but we were changing them. And as soon as I left, a bunch of leaders on the team sat down and said, no, this is where they went wrong, and this is what we're fixing. So, yes, that culture was allowed, but it was also because it was about to change. And I think my coach, you know, he coached for 15, 16 years at Grand Valley University at the DT level who won a countless amount of national titles there with them. He's been coaching women's soccer for over 20 years. I think he saw the foreshadow of what was coming. And it's really cool going into my last season. Like (laughs) we have a freshman right now. It just makes me laugh. She literally is the mini version of me. The spiraling that I used to do, I see her doing. At first people came in and they're like, oh, we don't like this girl. And when people are coming to me as team captain saying like, Sam, we got to do something about this girl. I look them and go, do something about yourself. Like, why don't you like this girl? And they're like, well, she's mean on the field. I was like, okay, have you gotten to know her off the field? And we had that conversation. And that right there, being in that moment of exactly where I was four or five years ago, that was why I was able to say that I was soccer. And that was why I was here.
0: I I like that. And I think that's the person that you did the interview with that I I listened to. And it kind of we we talked about something so I guess intense and and deep there. I want to ask, ask you because it, it just sounds funny because in that interview, you said it, you're saying it now too. Is this just a women's soccer thing? Is it your coach thing? You guys just call him Dave instead of like coach whatever his name is. Why, why is that? Why is he Dave?
1: You know, I think <laughs> I've called almost every single one of my coaches by their first name. I think a lot of it's a like uncomfortability thing with the coach. Like when I can text my coach, like we, you know – hang out in his office, like, it's not Coach Diani, it's Dave. I remember, like, growing up, I called my Coach Ralph. And so, yeah, that actually is a really interesting point that I never fully thought about. I think what it really does, honestly, is it makes the relationship a bit more natural. You know, if I'm going to be like, Coach Diani, you know, versus, hey, Dave, like, what about this? It makes, you know, of course, it's not a level playing field. You have your coach, you have your players, and that's sports. But something about being able to be like, oh, hey, Kato, or Andre is a bit more friendly and it, oh, yeah. it really relates down to that family aspect. You know, you don't call your dad, Mr. Carrie. it's dad. Wow. And so as much as that, it's Dave, it's friendly, it's family, it's comfortable.
0: Oh, no, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I want to ask you now, you talked about being that fifth year player now and taking that leadership role, being the team captain, making sure that the new players didn't have the experience that, that you had. I, I think that it's probably safe to say, based on the experience that you had and how you said that some of those upperclassmen weren't your biggest fan, that if the roles were reversed, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to listen to to that, uh, that interview that I did as far as, you know, the, the fifth year and the freshman probably wouldn't have been talking at all. So I just wonder how you, uh, what you wanted to put in place and how you wanted to make sure that the, the culture changed and, and exactly what it is now.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the biggest foundation, and this is something that Davis instilled in me and I fully believe in, you cannot have a team or a family without having relationships. I feel like it's so easy when you come in to have this power dynamic. Okay, so you have the freshmen, you have everyone else that's been there for a while, and you have your team captains and your coach. And this is hierarchy. And that's what I really, really hated about the team that I was on my freshman year. You know, we even believed in the whole, like, seniors eat first which I know is something that still goes on in a lot of programs, but that was something I personally hated. And maybe I hated it because I was a freshman in the back of the line, but I just felt very disconnected. It didn't feel like a natural family. It just felt like I was just a number, n- another number. And it felt like no one really cared about me. I couldn't be in line and having that conversation with that senior, joking around or whatever. And so that was actually the first thing we got rid of when that senior's left. We are absolutely, we're not doing freshmen eat first, we're not doing freshmen carry things off the bus. We're a family. We're a unit. We do everything as a unit. And even for me, like I fully believe in service leadership. So as a team captain, I eat last. Like, that is what I believe in because I am here to serve as much as I'm here as to be a part of the team. So I think changing the mentality, one thing I really do, and it's something that Dave encouraged me to do starting my sophomore year, and I've built it as every single time a new player comes into our program, we go out for coffee. I get to know them as a person. Because that's what I felt was missing. You know, people had this identity of who I was on the field, but no one took the time to get to know who Sam Carey really was, what my life story is, what I've been through, what I care about, what I like doing for fun on the weekends, what TV show I binge, all those random things. And I think that that's what you need to have a family because you're not going to listen to me if I'm talking to you on a field if I don't know you. Because you're like, "Who, who are you? You know, what are you talking about? Like, you don't care about me. You know, the first question I ask anyone coming into our program is, what is your why? Like, why do you play soccer? Because everyone can have a different answer to that. And that's fantastic. But if I'm talking to you and I don't know your why, I can't help motivate you in the right way. Mm-hmm. If your why is to be a professional, great. Let's get you there. Let's work on that. If I is to prove some of your haters wrong, that's fantastic, too. So when you're messing up, I'm going to say that hater's name in your ear and you're going to know what I mean. So, getting to know people on a personal level has been one of my biggest goals because that's how you build a family and that's how you build foundations. It's nothing about a hierarchy at Iowa, soccer, right now. It is not, I don't care if you've been here for a semester, if you've been here for five years, or anything in between. We are a group, we do this together, everyone matters. And I think that's the staple you have to do in building a culture. And the joke is right now, like, I was joking with some of our freshmen earlier, like it's supposed to be freshman hazing, right? I think I get hazed more than anyone on the team. The new drug was that it's 5th or hazing or something like that, right. which don't know how I feel, but yeah. you, know, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, get laughed at a little bit. And it's what makes everything more fun. So like we got rid of the hierarchy. We got rid of the egos right away. And we're here as a family from day one.
0: No, I, I love that. And I, I love that you, you know, you talked about finding people's why that's, that's a huge thing that's, I say that to to students every day. Just we gotta find your why because one, it's gonna help me understand you better. And but more importantly, when things are getting tough, you know, in that practice or you know, you're staying up until two AM studying for that exam. If you keep that why really close to the the forefront of your mind, it's what's gonna keep you going and keep you motivated. So I, I i love that i love that that's uh that's something that you that you talk to people about because that's powerful in in every aspect of life for sure
1: I Joke all the time i'm like so everyone you know you wake up you say how are you today and my response 100 every single day on the team is live in the dream and that's become a big joke and one girl asked me recently she's like i can't tell sam when you say live in the dream if that's like sarcastic or if that's real and i was like listen i decided at one point in my life that it was my dream to play college soccer and i am here every single morning it might be tough to get out of bed it might be you know your legs are sore your body's sore it happens i am living my dream so i have to remember every morning i like living the dream like we're here it's a great day to play soccer let's go do it and so that's my why
0: no that's that's awesome and we've talked only about soccer you threw that other thing in what's your favorite show to been sam
1: Oh gosh. So right now I'm going back through Dance Moms, which I don't know if my fiance truly appreciates. (laughs) Uh, I'm a reality TV show person. So amazing race, survivor, anything. like I am all about reality TV. I like it.
0: I like it. I want to ask you as a, a fifth year player, what that looks like as far as, as I guess, being on campus. Have you, have you already graduated are you in it doesn't look like you're in a dorm right now unless you've got some pretty nice dorms so what's fifth year look like as a as a college player
1: yeah so i do currently live in a house i live in a house with three other college girls we've lived together since our sophomore year and don't hate each other yet so that's a pretty big improvement um yeah as a fifth year it's a bit interesting so i'm actually graduating this may with one of my degrees i'm a double major in public health and sports studies so in may i'll be graduating with my public health degree from the university of iowa and then because i'll be within a semester of graduation for my other degree i actually only have to take three semester hours in the fall so really really a nice class load in the fall which will be amazing and a blessing and i'll graduate with my sports studies degree in december so a little bit of finagling to make it work in my favor but yeah so i've been in college for nine semesters now i'll finish with 10 semesters under my belt which is a bit crazy from coming in early and staying late but yeah, it's came in with transfer credits. I actually changed my major about five times. So I'm pretty lucky that I can graduate the way I am. But it's it's interesting just because I get to focus a bit more on soccer and you know, those coffee dates with teammates and stuff, which is a huge blessing to be able to have that free time in my schedule.
0: Another huge, huge topic, and that is I talked to somebody, oh goodness, it's probably a year, maybe, maybe a year and a half ago, who was the director of compliance for the Pac 12. And he talked all about, you know, the changing environment when it comes to NILs, which of course is name and image likeness, which is something that came about not that long ago. And I think since you've been in school, what, uh, I guess, what are your overall thoughts when it comes to to all of that? And then more importantly, because what really matters is, you know, the sport, how much do you think that it's it's changing sports as a whole, college sports anyways?
1: Yeah, you know. It's really interesting and like you said, you know, early in my college career, NIL was not a thing and I've been in college with the change. I think NIL brings amazing opportunity for student athletes to learn a lot of real life skills. You know, not all of us are gonna go into play professional athletes and do whatever. And there's a lot of real life stuff I know a lot of people have had to learn, even as simple as like how to file taxes, how to negotiate contracts, how to have business phone calls. And so, first of all, I think it's a huge learning platform. It's interesting, actually, right now I'm in an honors project to graduate with my sports studies degree with honors, and I'm doing an in depth study on NIL and the sexualization and mental health effects of NIL. Because I think one thing that we have seen is the players that get the NIL deals are typically, at least in the female athletes' world, not necessarily the most talented players, but the players that have the social media following. And no, I have no problem with that. Like girl, go do what you need to do. Have fun while you're doing it. Like that's completely like fair game, dude. It's interesting though, because it shows what we value as a society. And I think that's one thing that's really opened my eyes. And I think it's highlighted the inherent sexism in sport, because on the men's side, you see a lot of NIL deals based on talent, based on minutes, based on stats. And you see NIL deals in the women's world based on social media. On top of that, your men's sports are getting your sports NIL deals, your food NIL deals, well as your women's sports are getting your beauty and your clothing line NIL deals. So it very quickly showed what we value as a society. And I think that was probably the most eye-opening thing. You know, for how it's affecting college athletics, it's everything. You know, being a women's soccer player, I'm not a very NIL-heavy sport. Most people don't necessarily value women's soccer as a money grabber. If I'm looking at an Iowa athlete, I'm going for Caitlin Clark. I'm not going for Sam Carey. That makes sense. It's visibility. It's brand. It's marketing. It's exactly what the businesses are trying to do. That being said, it's affecting all sports. You know, it's the schools with the collectives, with the money now. You know, you can basically fund a whole nother scholarship off of simple NIL stuff. And The fact that we jumped into NIL without the regulations in place of how to stop certain things, how to really think things through about how we want it to happen, has made it a minefield in a lot of ways. And so it's complicated. It's interesting. I think on one side, you know, it's a great opportunity to go get money. And why not? You're marketing yourself. It's branding. It's everything, which makes complete sense. It's also, you know, it's given me. I published a book this summer. I would have never been able to do that without NIL. You know, there's a lot of amazing benefits to it, but it's also very much used college sports as a microcosm of society.
0: Yeah, I, I like the way you lay things out. You you kind of tell it like it is because that's that's just exactly how it, it seems to be going, which I think is unfortunate that on the male side, it really is to do with all to do with with talent on the female side, not as much. It it's more about just like you said, you know, social media following, what what people look like. And, and it, we almost don't even know what sports some of these people play. You know, I don't even remember their names. The the twin basketball players from Miami, they decided just to to stop playing basketball. They were making so much money off of, of everything else. So I think that it's I don't know whether it's being done completely correctly when it's supposed to help support people in sports, because I'm all about that. I, you know, I heard there was a documentary about, you know, the Michigan basketball team back in, back in the day with Ben Robinson and all these people. And he said, I couldn't even, you know, I was on this, you know, huge team. I was, we were the most popular team in the the country, but I couldn't even afford to buy my own, own Jersey at that time. and And they were making millions of dollars off my back. That's the problem. But the problem is now I feel like, it's not even about the sports anymore it's about everything but so there's there's a lot uh i think there's a lot to to figure out still and i don't know whether it will because i feel like really what matters is just money and just because nil is out there now it's basically just taking taking things that's been in the shadows for a long time and just putting them in light it's not like money hasn't always been there so
1: oh 100 i think one of the most interesting things is In a lot of regards, NIL is adapted and shifted in a way of we're going away from just simple negotiation deals to collectives. And that's Mm -hmm. a whole other conversation because more so that can't be regulated because it's not like the university can step in and say anything because it's a private entity. So for example, I'll be the first one to say it. And I've said it to athletic director Gary Barda's face. Iowa Swarm, I get he's something that he cannot control because it's a private entity. But I find it very interesting that we have a collective at the University of Iowa that supports... Football, men's basketball, and women's basketball. What about the other ones of us? So my friend on the women's basketball team can make money from a collective and I can do the exact same thing and get nothing for it. And I understand that that's a private entity. There's nothing that the athletic department really can do. But once again, it shows value in what we care about. So who am I to be a women's soccer player? You know, If I'm not on the women's basketball team doing all this stuff, I am undervalued. Does that mean that the university or the collectives don't see something in me? don't want me to be a part of something. And so I think it raises a lot of questions about what we value again. I,
0: I agree with that. I I mean, I, I'm always trying to find ways to to challenge people and play devil's advocate. I agree with that 100%. But I guess the question that I, I feel like people would say to that is before NIL, it, it was kind of the same way, really, wasn't it? That all these other sports were not valued. And I don't know whether because they weren't revenue drivers or or what the case was, but I don't – do you think NIL has really changed that or it's just amplifying what's always been a problem?
1: Exactly. I don't think NIL has changed anything, but it also hasn't done – I think there's opportunity for NIL to do the contrary and start closing the gap if it, mm-hmm. when it's used correctly. And I think instead we've just amplified the problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And do you think you – know, you talked about how the – athletic director says you know this is a private entity there's not much i can do do you think that it would be possible or something that should be looked at that hey they obviously you can't control a private entity but the universities should have more say and hey if you're going to support these things you've got to you've got to you know open the umbrella a little bit bigger for, for everybody else you think that's productive or or would just drive people away from donating at all
1: and that's the issue, you know. I do understand, you know, money is limited. So if you say I have enough money in this collective to donate to three sports, and I'm going to choose these three, well, would you rather those three sports, or would you rather nothing? So I, you know, like we said earlier with you, soccer. We know that this country and the way we value things is all on money. And so why would you th- turn away millions of dollars just because it don't support everyone? So from a complete logistical standpoint, I 100% understand it.
0: However, that doesn't mean that it's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I hear you. And I think this is obviously a – I started it by saying this is a huge topic. It's something that I think we could spend the whole time talking about. But but I, I I think that, you know, it's so new that we'll just have to see exactly what happens. Yeah, so we've kind of guys got to leave that part part of yeah. that. Um, when it comes to soccer and, and collegiate soccer, it looks like the, the season's from August to November, right? Yep. So what what happens the rest of the year? I know a lot of things are very regulated when it comes to college sports. Are you able to practice with the re- with your team in in the spring too? Is there summer practice? Is it just you're there for the fall and then in the spring just have a good time or what's happening?
1: Oh, yeah, practice does not stop. So yeah. August 1st is the start of preseason. Majority of years, obviously, there's weeks or that shifts, but preseason starts August 1st. We all are in campus. I believe I'm said I'm gonna report to campus June 2nd this year. So it's not like soccer's not happening. We're just not allowed to work with our coaching staff. To be honest, it's very problematic that we are not allowed to work with our coaching staff this early, and it's something that is in proposal to get changed. Women's soccer is the earliest sport to start in the NCAA calendar. And with that, like for example, next season. Preseason is August 1st. Our first non-conference but countable game is August 15th. That is two weeks that we are not allowed to work with a coach. Technically, the first time we are around each other to get a team together and start competing. And I think that is why you see so many injuries happen in the non-conference season of women's soccer because how are you supposed to prepare for it? So that's one issue entirely. But getting off of that tangent... Yeah, so we'll be in season from August 1st through typically like the final four is the first week of December. So that whole time we're in season, we have, once you get out of season, you have two weeks off and you're back at it. That's technically your non conference period. So we are allowed eight hours of practice, four with a ball, four without a ball. So conditioning and strength training versus on the field with our coaches. And then immediately jumping back into the spring, we basically go back into 20 hour weeks. So our schedule is the same as fall, except that we're not traveling every weekend. We have practice six days a week. We're lifting four days a week this spring. So it's technically from a lot of standpoints, a lot of people say it's physically more tiring in the spring than the fall. And that makes sense, though. You're building your body, frankly, for it to be torn down again. Like, that's the whole system. And then, yeah, so we started that 20-hour period. We, like, started an eight-hour week. Then you'd get to that 20-hour period. So that's January through May. And I'll go home for three weeks and then be back here in June. So it is a never-ending cycle. In the spring, we're allowed five game days. So how you split those, how you do. So a lot of people will do like jamboree style. So we've done in the past where you play, you know, Drake, Iowa State, Iowa, and Mizzou. We'll come in and we'll play like 45 minutes against this team and 45 minutes against that team. That's one game day. Or you just play a straight-up game. We had a game against Mizzou last weekend. We're going to Milwaukee in two weeks. So we still play. We're around all the time. We're around each other all the time. And honestly, it's a huge developmental period. For Iowa soccer alone, we had six new faces come into our program in January, whether that be transfers or we had three girls graduate high school early like I did. So we're getting them into our program. We're acclimating. We're kind of figuring out what we're bringing into this fall. That way we'll all leave in May with a plan about whether we're playing in a summer league, whether we're coming back to campus, what that looks like, and then kind of hit the ground running. That way we're ready to go and on our game come August 1st.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So what I, I guess I wonder about, you say that you're going to report in early June and you can't work with the, the staff until August. So are you working with each other with just without the coaches there? Or what What's that look like? You just spend two months just, just with your team or I, I guess I'm wondering and what are the coaches doing? They're, they're not able to actually do anything for you. I, it just seems really strange to me.
1: Yeah. So when I say coaches, I'm talking about our soccer specific coaches. So a lot of the time in the summer, that's prime recruiting time. That's what a lot of the youth leagues have their regional, their national tournaments and stuff like that. So that's where a lot of their mindsets are at. We are allowed to work with our strength coach, which is a huge advantage. So all of our summer weightlifting, all of our summer conditioning, we have through our strength coach. And that's why we get there in June. That way we're physically in shape. We're lifting. We're ready for that injury prevention period. Like I said, so many girls get hurt in that preseason because they're not ready. They have taken weeks off of lifting. You know, their body's not in shape enough to handle a 90-minute intense game. So that's what we're doing. And then we do captain's practices. So as a group, we will fully run a practice together. You know, myself, I've been in the college game for five years now. I know what a typical practice looks like. So we just draw them up ourselves. So we'll lift with an hour or we'll run with our coach, whatever that look, day looks like. And so we keep as much as we can, the same schedule we'll have in the fall. Obviously, it's not completely the same without our coaches, but a lot of us have been here long enough to know what those look like. So we run them ourselves, basically.
0: So you're saying in the spring that the the, the team has Coach Carey.
1: Exactly, exactly. They got to deal with Coach Carey all summer. That's on them.
0: <laughs> I like it. You talked about, about injury, and this is something I ask a lot of people in different sports? Because I'm always surprised by some of the common injuries when it comes to sports, because it's not something I would think about. So in in soccer, what are these injuries that a lot of people are sustaining?
1: Yeah, so women's soccer leads in two different injuries, which are both very scary for different reasons. Number one, ACL tears. Women's soccer is the number one cause of ACL tears. There's so many different logic and sciences as to why this occurs everything down to being on birth control to larger hips to there's a whole brand of amazing soccer cleats that make cleats that are designed for women's feet because they think that's the reason why acl tears happen so there's a vast amount of science that goes into it but acl tears are devastating and massive and on top of that women's soccer is number two of all sports behind football and concussions Mm. a lot of that is we're a very aerial sport you know headers challenges and stuff like that and going up for head-to-head battles you can get knocked pretty good and I think the science behind that is women's neck muscles don't tend to be as solid as male's neck muscles and going up so women are more likely to sustain a concussion so there's a lot of crazy injuries that can happen and then in the college realm you know a lot of it's the turnover that happens we have practices six days a weeks we're in a 20 hour week so we're playing 20 hours of soccer a week on top of that, we have games on Thursdays and Sundays and that turnaround is just so cyclical that that's when you know, one small tweak of your quad that might mean nothing in high school soccer because you have two days off after is going to slowly and slowly build into something much more big. And so, you know, it's really interesting to see what injuries come up a lot. And it's a range. Like I said, you have something that can have you out for a week to nine months, which is really scary to say.
0: Yeah. And this is something if we would have talked two weeks ago, I would have, I would never even think about but as i sit here now i like two weeks ago broke my toe which wasn't (laughs) wasn't so great i'm sitting here with a buddy tape now uh is that a very common thing when you talk about these shoes i'm thinking about just in my head now with you know with this broken toe thinking kicking a ball over and over and over i feel like that's not comfortable. How are these shoes super padded or uh, how am I just a baby? How do you deal with that stuff?
1: (laughs) Well, luckily it's not that the shoes are padded. A lot of it comes into the technique you kick with. So weirdly enough, a lot of people like that don't know soccer aren't really aware of this, but your toes have nothing to do with the way you strike a ball. It's all with the top of your foot and your laces and your instep. So, you know, it's really interesting. And a lot of it's just kicking balls over and over. I will say this is really gross. I don't have three toenails like because they've been stepped on so much or hit all the time so there's a lot of weird things that will happen um but at the second point when you're playing college soccer your cleats are like a glove on your foot so I don't even think about it anymore so it's really interesting to see just how your mind kind of forgets about that aspect I
0: mean I I I guess I kind of knew that the I'm just so you know broken toe focused right now (laughs) but I, I I do realize now that soccer you're not really using your your toe but I feel like Anytime you're using your your foot, any you know those are those are loose things that could happen. So I, I I hear you. What I want to ask you now is about that book you talked about that you you wrote a book last summer. Talk about that. What what was what's that all about?
1: Yeah. So you know, randomly, I I work for a company called Girl Soccer Network, and they're an amazing company that is a social media way of you know promoting young girls in the game. And we work with everything from girls who first take their touch on a ball through pros. And so it's something I actually got through, through NIL. And I started working for the company because I love their mission and I see what they do. So through that, randomly this summer, I was talking to my boss and I was like, I think there's a place here to write a book. And she was like, well, okay, like sign me up, let's do it. And I was just thinking a lot, you know, you talked about earlier, like youth soccer can be so confusing. On top of that, you know, there's so many things that happen in college soccer that I was not prepared for. Whether that be what does preseason look like? What does your schedule look like? How do you deal with missing classes three days a week? All these different factors that really don't come into your head when you're deciding to play college soccer, like as a seventh grader, like I did. I didn't have an older sister, as I call it, who went through the process, who knew what was going on. So I decided to become one. And I wrote a book called Mm -hmm. The Do's and Don'ts of College Soccer. And with that, I came up with the 10 chapters, which I deem as the 10 most important things that I've taken away from college soccer. Everything from recovering from injury, mental health, missing school, preseason, dealing with season, what offseason looks like. And then even my last chapter is probably my favorite, and it's a for the parents chapter. You know, as much as we're getting into this as players, no one really warns the parents either. And what I did is I didn't want it just to be from my voice because I've had my own set of experiences, but I understand that experiences obviously differ. So I reached out to my college soccer community. As much as we all hate each other in the field, we all are pretty tight knit. It's a close world. And I asked people, you know, what would you say about preseason? What would you be your biggest do or your biggest don't? You know, how did you do this? And through that, I wrote a book about it it's been an amazing process. And I think the coolest thing for me is the amount of outreach back I've gotten about it. The amount of people that have read the book and said like, like they bought the book this summer going into their freshman year in college and saying it really helped them. Or Mm -hmm. even the other day, like someone bought their book for someone's birthday and I like personalized autographed it. And they said like, it really is just a different way of looking at things. And like I said, my whole meaning behind it was I never had that older sister. And so this was my chance to deliver my message and be that older sister for other people.
0: Right, I love that. So you know, we want people to pick up the book. People are listening to to this. Maybe they're they're a parent that has a you know a, a kid that's excelling at a sport, be it soccer or something else, or or they're a young person and in, in looking at college too. So the book is going to expand on things. But what would you? What's one or two points that you would you would give advice to to that parent or that kid to, uh, I guess, transition successfully?
1: Yeah, I think. You know, the two things that jump out to my head, first of all, for the kid, know that the sun will always come up tomorrow. And the way I say that is I remember vividly, and I talk about it in the book, my freshman year, I had this coach, his name was Drago. And those days where I would kick myself after those small mistakes, he would see it in my face. He would see it in my body language that I was shutting down. And he would come up to me and put his arm on my shoulder and say, hey, sun's coming up tomorrow, kid. And I'd be like, you can shut up right now. I was like, I'm ready to punch you in the face. This is the dumbest thing in the world. Like, no duh, it's coming up tomorrow. And I didn't really understand that until I'd say probably about a year ago. And I was like, wait, you know, my whole crazy story is we were in the Big Ten semifinals, complete underdogs. And in that game, I got a double yellow card, which meant I got a red card. And so the rest of that game against number four in the country, Penn State, I sat on the bench and my team had to play down a man. We ended up upsetting the game. I get, we get to the Big Ten Championship, first ever Big Ten champion, Tournament Championship for Iowa Women's Soccer. It's the first game I can't start in my college career because I had that red card in the game earlier. And it's the only game I haven't played in my college career. And in that moment, I felt like the biggest loser. I felt at the lowest of my lows. And guess what? My team won a Big Ten Tournament, champ, Big Ten tournament and I have my Big Ten Championship ring on my desk and as much as I had a red card, I couldn't play. The sun came up tomorrow, and that's my biggest lesson is you might make a mistake on the field. You might cause an own goal. You might lose the game for your team. That's okay. The sun's going to come up and remember why you play the sport. So Mm. that one definitely hits deep for me, and I think for parents, you know, one that comes to my head is, is college is tough on your kid. There's no doubt about it. You know, my coaches are my biggest supporters, but my biggest critics at the same time. And I remember early in my years, my mom would try to help me, you know, like, oh, you should have done this in the game. You should have done this. Leave the coaching to the coaches. As much as like through youth soccer, I think parents get away with that a lot. Your child needs a hug after the game, no matter if they played perfect or if they absolutely sucked, you need that hug. And so I think the importance of understanding that this is a different scenario and to be the support leader and not the coach anymore.
0: Oh, I think those are, those are both really powerful things. You're talking about, you know, parents. What do you, how do your parents feel about all of this? Obviously, you you went from the, them saying, "Okay, well, if you if you're going to be serious about this, then we'll pay for it. But if not, we're not gonna we're not gonna take all of this, you know, burden." And now for you to to be a fifth year player at a Big Ten school to have had the success you have, I, I assume that they're very proud. I also want to ask you. I'll, I'll let you talk about the you know them being proud there. But I heard in the other interview that you. I, I think that they come to. To most games, you, you talked about how uh, they're from St. Louis. I don't know how far Iowa City is from that, but it sounds like a little bit of a drive.
1: Yeah, my mom is the ultimate soccer mom. Her to death. She has everything you could ever dream of. And so Iowa City to St. Louis is about four hours. In my entire college career, my mother has missed three soccer games. Hmm. It is insane. She and she drives everywhere. She doesn't like flying. So she drove to Penn State. She drives to Rutgers. She drives everywhere. She flew out to UCLA when we played them in the fall. She will be at every single game. Hmm. And like I said earlier, there is nothing that beats that hug for your mom. I don't care if you're 8 or if you're 22. When I come off the field, the first thing I do is go straight for my mom and hug her. And there's just something so special, you know. My mom and I built our relationship on the soccer field. And honestly, same with my dad. You know, I joke all the time. My dad's an aerospace engineer. He was never an athlete. So I have vivid memories of going to the soccer field when I was about a fourth grader and struggling at learning how to kick a ball and like shoot it well. And instead of my dad, you know, being the one like, oh, you should kick the ball here, my dad showed up with a whiteboard and drew out the physics of how to kick a soccer ball. Uh, There's a lot of crazy stuff. But (laughs) memories like that, you know, you don't get those back. I don't get the 11 hour car rides with my mom home from Michigan as we watch Gilmore Girls and eat gummy bears. I don't get those back. And I think my mom knows that too. You know, she's been my cheerleader my entire life. You know, honestly, when I was growing up, she was my harshest critic, but also my biggest fan. She's driven me to everything. She's always been there and she wants to be there for the rest of the ride. And I can't thank her more for that. And I think a lot of it is, you know, I'd like to think my parents are very proud of where I'm at. I get to, you know, I was looking back the other day. I'm like, I have what I dreamed of for so long. On top of that though, I'm not done climbing and I'm not going to get complacent with where I'm at. And that's what I think I'm most excited about is I know I haven't hit my ceiling. And I think my parents know that they're still going to be behind me in a lot more in my journey.
0: I I love that. And I want to ask you now, you know, what, what the future holds, obviously we never know for sure, but you're going into your fifth year. There's, there's not sixth and seventh years in college. So what, what, where's that journey going to take? Is your mom going to have to, uh, to put some more airline miles on or, or what's going to happen there?
1: I'm thinking she might. Yeah. You know, I'm taking in the last six months I haven't an Iowa Jersey as much as I can. And, you know, it honestly makes me teary eyed to even say that out loud. It's crazy. What a journey it's been. It's been incredible, but I'm not done with soccer. There's no way that this is the end for me. And so I do have this aspiration to be a professional soccer player, which is so exciting to say out loud. And I don't know where that means for me. That might mean in the United States playing the NWSL. That might be moving to Europe for a couple of years and playing overseas. You know, frankly, there's not a bad option, you know, playing in the United States. My mom gets to come to every single game. Still, I'm sure she would, even if I'm out in LA or down in Florida, but also traveling the country, experiencing different or traveling the world, experiencing different cultures in Europe and, at the end of the day, I'm playing the sport I love for a living. So that's not a bad thing. So that's definitely the trajectory I'm on. Not sure where that journey will take me. It'll probably take me a bunch of different places. But it's an exciting thing to think about. And I'm, I'm ready for the next adventure.
0: It, it certainly is exciting. So if, if people want to follow along and see where uh, where that journey does take you, where where can they connect with you?
1: Absolutely. I'm on Instagram at Sam.cary and Twitter at SamCarrie with two Ys.
0: Well, there you go. what has been a pleasure. Don't, uh, don't tell anyone else, but I I guess for women's soccer, Iowa may have a, may have a new fan this year.
1: All right. All right. I appreciate you. Nothing,
0: nothing else though. (laughs)
1: I'll take it. Yeah. Have a good one. You too.
0: So that was Sam Carey. And of course, as an IU, Indiana University fan, that last statement just stings even saying, but I'll tell you, she was such a pleasure to speak with, you know, you can't help, but, uh, root for her whether you root for her particular school or not that's uh, that's up to you but uh, I uh, I enjoyed speaking with uh, Sam a lot you know I, I like I said in the beginning I learned so much from her just about you know the world of Nil the world of you know making decisions for your future so early uh, the cr- recruitment process in, in college sports and you know specifically women's soccer just the world of just mental health. There's there's so many aspects of this conversation. And uh, I, I really appreciate her time. You know, <laughs> for, for all zero of you who care about this dang broken toe that I talked about, you know, I, I recorded this a few months ago, there were always a few months behind when it comes to, uh, to releases. So everything's fine. Now I am walking normal, that uh, that was a prime thing in my head for a little while. So there'll be a, a an interview or two in the future that I, I still talk about that with a few other college athletics uh, players you know gymnasts and, and some other things so stay tuned for those amazing conversations but me whining more about that that broken toe uh, but uh, yeah with, with Sam really really appreciated her time I will put a link to her social media I will put a link to her book uh, I urge you to check that out urge you to go follow along with her this is your first time listening to this podcast. Appreciate you being here. Go follow along with us on, on Facebook, Not Enough with Jackson Huff. On Instagram, Not Enough in Podcast, jacksonhuff.com. A lot of great places there. Appreciate your support. Go give us a five star review on Spotify and Apple. Even more amazing. And uh, if you've got some time, go on Apple and leave a written review. That's even more amazing yet. So I appreciate you being here. If you do nothing else, catch us next week. Another great guest. Take us out, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think,
1: or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.